0: It started out kind of petty and ended up being kind of funny. It was 1978. I was fishing with my dad out of the Gaspé Peninsula of Quebec. The boat hadn't been converted to a seiner yet, so we were still configured as a midwater trawler. Dad was the chief mate. His twin brother was the captain. And there were seven other of us that made up the rest of the crew. And it was kind of a, a motley bunch that Dad and Clint had recruited. Now, most of us had no fishing experience, but what we lacked in experience, we made up for in ignorance. It was uh, pretty sad to start. We were all learning the ropes, so to speak, and the twins had a fair amount of patience and grace with each of us, except when it came to John. John was our cook. He wasn't a bad cook, but he annoyed the life out of dad. John had never been to sea before, and he embraced it with an exuberance that drove my father nuts. John couldn't mop the floor. He had to swab the deck. And when he replied in affirmative to my father or Clint, he couldn't simply say yes. He had to say, aye, aye, skipper. And it wasn't long before he was given the name Salty Dog, which he mistakenly thought was a term of endearment. So we're in North Sydney. The forecast was for a bit of a blow. And one of the other fishing captains mentioned to Clint that we probably wouldn't be fishing for a couple of days because of the weather. Wrong thing to say to Clint. Clint and dad had kind of cut their teeth on salvage tugs. There was no such thing as bad weather. So Clint decided to prove a point. That you could actually midwater trawl in rough weather. Well, Dad saw an opportunity in the storm. He thought it'd be a great time to introduce Salty Dog to a nor'easter and make him quit. Well, it was quite the deck, or quite the night. We worked on deck in water up to our waist and we caught fish. Clint proved a point. You could indeed fish in a storm. It wasn't pretty, it wasn't fun, but it was doable. But the highlight of the trip was on our way back to port. The storm had broke, the sun was out, but it was still rough. The boat was pitching and rocking. I was sick, which was pretty much the norm. And Dad and Clint were in the wheelhouse, and they looked out, and standing right at the point of the bow, with one foot up on a rail, holding a pipe, was Salty Dog. <laughs> well, the boat was laid up that summer to be converted to a saner, and John wasn't invited back, but he proved a point. He proved that he enjoyed a good storm. This is week 2 of our Weathering the Storms of Life series. Last week I looked at the story of Jonah and the storms he found himself in. And from that story we discovered 5 lessons about storms. We discovered that not every storm is our fault. That every action has consequences for others. We learned not to make major decisions when you're in the midst of a storm. That no storm lasts forever. And that the remedy for disobedience is obedience. And if you weren't here last week and want to hear those points fleshed out or read them, you can go to the website and find the videos or certainly find the manuscript. Today we're jumping into a Jesus story that's told in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called that because they contain many of the same stories. So let's begin with the backstory. The story begins on the beach on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is teaching to the crowd. And as the crowd got larger, and it was pushing in on him and backing him up to the water, he got to the point that he asked to to borrow a boat that he preached on. It became a floating pulpit. I love it. Jesus had begun his ministry preaching in the synagogues, the way it had been done for hundreds of years. But as his ministry expanded, so did his methods. He realized if he was going to reach everyone he was called to reach, it wouldn't happen in the synagogue, because some people would never come to the synagogue. The same discovery was made by John Wesley, 1,700 years after Jesus made it. George Whitfield was a contemporary and a friend of John Wesley's. He had begun preaching to the miners outside the mines. They say that there were times that he was preaching to upward of 20,000 men. At one particular point, hundreds of people were being converted, and so Whitfield sent for John Wesley to come join him. But Wesley responded by writing, I love a commodious room, a soft cushion, a handsome pulpit. He was almost offended by the concept of open-air preaching. But Wesley would later read, write, I could scarcely reconcile myself at first to this strange way, having been all my life till very lately, so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order, that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not happened or had not been done in a church. Well, Wesley soon came to the conclusion that if he was going to reach the unchurched, he would have to go to them. So he became an open-air, open-field preacher as well, scandalized the Anglican church, and was criticized for his actions of taking the gospel outside the walls of the church. I'm pretty sure that there were those who thought that what Jesus was doing was a little orthodox. They probably criticized him for it, said he should be preaching inside the synagogue, not outside the synagogue. Well, through the day, Jesus continued to teach to the crowd that had gathered around him. And uh, until later in the day, he took the time to to take the inner circle, the disciples, and take them to one side to go a little deeper in the teaching. You understand that that if the only spiritual food you get is on Sunday morning, the the teaching to the crowd, the preaching to the crowd, you're probably not going to be properly nourished. We have all kinds of opportunities for you to go deeper in the Word of various life groups that are offered at Cornerstone. Certainly all kinds of opportunities as far as books you can read and, and uh, podcasts, all kinds of things to go deeper. But if you're only getting what you hear on Sunday morning, probably not being fed. Nothing is more frustrating for a pastor than when someone comes to tell them they're leaving the church because they aren't being fed. It's like telling the cook, the meals don't satisfy. I don't know about other pastors, but when I hear that, I want to lay hands on them. I mean, to pray for them. And say, Lord, what type of person do you think I am? (laughs) To pray for them and say, Lord, teach them to eat. Teach them to eat. That was a tangent. It was free. So Jesus spends the day teaching, and we arrive at Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 36. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. I would suspect, that because the writers say they, they took Jesus in the boat, and not simply a boat, that they had a specific boat in mind. It was probably the boat that he had preached from earlier in the day. Now, there's another story in the Gospels that tell us that that particular boat was Peter's boat, in, in another instance where he preached from boat. So we had assume that perhaps it was Peter's boat this time. I know sometimes when you assume you're wrong, but sometimes when you assume you're right, too. So just kind of go with that assumption that he was preaching from Peter's boat. And that leads us to the storm story. So, Jesus is teaching all day. He's probably emotionally spent from the time he spent with people and interacting with people. When I first began preaching, I was amazed at how much emotionally it takes out of you to preach. And it doesn't take nearly as much out of me as time I spend with people. The thing most people don't understand is that Dan is a little bit of an introvert. Um, it's hard to believe, but I, I, it, being in crowds of people and interacting with people drains me. It's not that I don't like it, it's just it drains me of emotional energy. And we discovered that in the story that Jesus has spent all day with people and it would appear that he's the one that's, that's seeking rest. He gets to the end of the day and he flops out and goes to sleep in the boat. And I remember times that we were fishing. The joys of sleeping on a boat. That would either be steaming out to the fishing grounds or steaming back and, and I'd go out and crash on the net on the, on the stern of the boat and just lay there in the, in the sun and allow the, the motion of the boat to kind of woo me to sleep. And that's where Jesus is at this point. He's dead to the world. And it seems that that the guys are doing the sailing and Jesus is doing the sleeping and we pick up the story in Mark chapter 4 verse 37 but soon a fierce storm came up high waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water now those in the know tell us that the Sea of Galilee which wasn't a sea, it was just a really big lake is notorious for its storms they can literally come out of nowhere one writer said it is not unusual to see terrible squalls hurl themselves even when the sky is perfectly clear upon these waters which are so ordinarily calm. It was because of the shape of the hills surrounding Galilee and the ravines which funneled the winds from the hill down into the water. So it wasn't like they had uh, embarked in a storm or even knew a storm was coming. They had no weather channel to check. And I don't know this for sure, but I'm suspecting that the boat was pretty close to its maximum capacity. If you look at the pictures of the fishing boats that they use on the Sea of Galilee even now, they don't look like they were designed for 13 men. And if on an average, if each one of the guys only weighed 150 pounds, that's nigh on a ton of guys in the boat. Not figuratively a ton, but literally a ton. The boat is probably wallowing a little low in the water. It's probably responding sluggishly because of the extra weight. A little tippy because the center of gravity had, was thrown out of kilter. And Peter's probably saying, guys, just stay down and stay still. You're going to knock us over. And the wind increased. The waves began to break over the gunnels of the boat, filling it with water. Not only that, but Jesus is, says Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Note, they did not ask Jesus for help. Instead, they make an accusation. They said, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Because of their circumstances, the disciples formed a very unflattering opinion of Jesus. They accused him of not caring about them. How often have we said in the midst of the storm, where are you, God? Why have you allowed this to happen? You must not care about me. And even though they didn't ask Jesus to do anything, in the next verse we read, when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind, said to the water, silence, be still. And suddenly the wind stopped. There was a great calm. And then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified who is this man they asked each other even the wind and waves obey him one minute it was storming the next minute nothing Edward, we Graham and Anna it was flat calm not a ripple and that isn't the way it's supposed to be the wind doesn't simply stop and if it did the sea doesn't magically become calm but it did this was so impossible that it scared the disciples more than the storm did because it's at that point it says they were absolutely terrified So what do we learn from the story? Well, the first thing is that sometimes obedience leads us into storms. Last week, Jonah ended up in a storm because he was disobedient. God said, go. Jonah said, no. God wanted him to go east. Instead, he went west. But here, the disciples are following Jesus' direction. They couldn't have been any more obedient than what they were. In 1952, Jim Elliot, following God's direction... And God's calling, he went to Ecuador as a missionary. And then it was in 1956 in Ecuador that he was killed by the very people he went to minister to. He was 29 years old, left behind a wife and a year-old daughter. Really, God? Don't you care? On December 11th, 1889, Reverend and Mrs. Henry Johnson became the first Wesleyan missionaries when when they sailed for Sierra Leone with their toddler son, Irvin. Reverend Johnson wrote out these words about his commitment to missions before they sailed. He said, The Lord being my helper, I do this day consecrate to the Lord and lay upon his altar, not to be mine any longer, only as the Lord wills it. My wife, my home, my child, my position, my papers, my church, my friends, my reputation, my relatives, my plans of life, my convictions of right, my political opinions, my reform ideas, my health, my mind, my body, my pride, my ambitions, my all the Lord take me and cleanse me and make me holy thine through the blood of Jesus when I first visited Sierra Leone in 2007 I visited the plot of land where the first Wesleyan missionaries were buried and I stood at the grave of Irvin his son who died when he was 5 years 4 months and 4 days old what a storm for his parents who were there obedient to God and this child died Really, really God don't you care You know, we don't and won't always know why obedience sometimes leads us in the storms. But sometimes it does. You do what God is asking you to do, and yet, which leads us to the next lesson, and that is Jesus is always with us in the storm. The disciples must have forgotten about Jesus, and when they remembered that he was there, they were afraid that he had forgotten about them. If you are a Christ follower, his promise is not that hard times won't come. His promise that he'll be there with you through the hard times. The promise was made to the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy. It says, so be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not panic before them. For the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He'll ne- neither fail you nor abandon you. And the promise was reiterated for those who followed Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, it says, for God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you after Jesus had been crucified, died, rose from the dead. He made this promise to his followers in Matthew 28, 20. said, Jesus said, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. You're more familiar with the older translation, it says, lo, I am with you always, even at the end of the world. Uh, Tony Campola, who's a Baptist preacher, told about a flight he had taken many years ago that was very rough and he said he looked over and there was a nun across from him and she was praying and going through the rosary and he said he could tell that she was scared to death of flying. He said he wanted to be a comfort to her, so he leaned over and pet her in the arm and said, that's okay, sister. Jesus said he'll be with us always. He said the nun looked at him and said, no, he said, lo, I'll be with you always. <laughs> that's kind of Angela's philosophy when it comes to flying as well, right? It seems like in the midst of the storm, the disciples were all alone, but they weren't. It was Franklin Graham who wrote, no matter what storm you face, you need to know God loves you. He has not abandoned you. You may not feel his presence, but that doesn't negate his promise that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And he will be with you always, even to the ends of the age, low and high, in sunny weather and in the storms. The third thing is a storm teaches us about ourselves. The apostles learned some things that day about themselves and about Jesus that they would never have discovered on a sunny day on the beach. Writer Willa Cather reminds us, there are some things you learn best in calm and some in storm. The storm gave the apostles a better insight into themselves and into the power of Jesus. It was here they discovered their lack of faith. I mean, it's one thing to say that you believe that Jesus can keep you in the storm when you're not in a storm. It's another thing to be able to say that you believe that Jesus can keep you in the midst of the storm you're in. When the apostles questioned the compassion of Christ, they said, don't you care that we're going to drown? They were discovering what they believed and didn't believe about Jesus. And it was in the midst of the storm that they learned that Jesus most certainly did care. But they also learned that Jesus equated their fear with faithlessness. Listen to his words in Mark chapter 4 verse 40. Then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They thought they were afraid of the storm. But the reality is they were afraid because they didn't trust Jesus to keep his promise. Remember what he told them at the very beginning of the story. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. That was the promise. We're going to the other side of the lake. He didn't say, let's go to the middle of the lake and and drown. He said, let's cross to the other side of the lake. They started the journey with him, but they didn't believe him when he said that they had finished the journey with him. It is in the storms that you discover just how much you trust God. Just how much you believe his promises. And the storm teaches us about Jesus. Not only did the apostles make discoveries about who they were, they also made discoveries about who Jesus was. It was as a result of the storm that they asked the first question about Jesus' divinity. And up to that point, they recognized him as a teacher, as a rabbi, as someone who should be listened and followed. But, but listen in Mark chapter 4, verse 41. The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the winds and the waves obey him. They got a deeper insight into God. You see, storms give, give us a deeper insight into who Jesus really is and what he can really do. I was talking to a man the other day who had been going through storms in his life. He said that he's been a Christian since he was a teenager, but he told me that his relationship with Christ had never been an intimate relationship. He said until he needed to lean on Christ during this particular storm. He said that he wished that things had turned out differently than they had as a result of the storm, but he said his relationship with Christ was deeper and more intimate than it had ever been before, and that he was thankful for that. It was Holocaust survivor Corey Tenboom who wrote, You may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And that trust extends upward. Jesus told the crowds who followed him, he said, If you trust me, you're trusting not only me, but also God who sent me. If you trust the Son, you trust the Father. Conversely, if you don't trust the Son, then you don't trust the Father. The next thing we learn, we discover in Matthew chapter 4, verse 38 said jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion here's what we learn it's easy to nap when you know who's in control everybody else was panicking because they could only see the storm but jesus knew the storm had no power over him that he was in control when i was sailing with dad whenever i had a chance to sleep i slept i never fretted over whether or not we would make it safely home because i trusted my father There were times I couldn't sleep because I couldn't stay in the bunk, but that's a story for another time. King David wrote in Psalm 91, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him. Remember, Jesus associated the apostle's fear with lack of faith. So trusting in Jesus is simply replacing our fear with faith maybe you think that there are no storms coming up in your life or you equate storms with only those big things that happen in your life 1500 years ago augustine wrote these words when you have to listen to abuse that means you're being buffeted by the wind when your anger is roused you're being tossed by the waves rouse him then remember him let him keep watch within you pay heed to him a temptation arises it's the wind it disturbs you it is a surging of the sea this is a moment to awaken Christ and let him remind you of those words. Who can this be? Even the winds and waves obey him. Last Sunday, we, we ended with a promise from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 25. that says, when the storms of life come, the wicked are whirled away, but the godly have a lasting foundation. If you've ever been to a funeral that I have performed, then you've heard the promise found in Psalm 121 says, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and earth. He will not let you stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. The Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as your protective shade. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon at night. The Lord keeps you from all harm and watches over your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and you go both now and forever, in the sunshine and in the storms. I don't know where everyone is today, but I would suspect that if you're people, you look like people, that you've either been through storms, you're in the midst of a storm, or there's a storm to come. You may not have found answers in the last two messages. I'd say, bear with me, we've got two more to go. But understand, if you get nothing else from today, that he is with you, that even in the midst of the storm, when he can't feel his presence, believe his promise. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for who you are and what you do for us. And Lord, we ask that you be with us now, be with each person who is here, Father. Keep them safe in the storms. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.